Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Listen in as former Senate Chiefs of Staff come together to give an update on the current political landscape. Policy directors Brian McGuire and Drew Littman join strategic advisor Mark Begich for a bipartisan discussion on the possibility of a shift in the House and Senate, increased Democratic turnout, and Trump's impact on red states with 2018 midterm elections. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. Today we're going to have a little political update, which is always kind of fun. We have uh, Brian McGuire and Drew Littman here. These guys uh, are well known within the political arenas, but also incredible uh, part of the Brownstein team. And Drew Littman, policy director, previously served as Senator Al Franken's chief of staff, where he led a staff of more than 30 and spearheaded all legislative policy and press initiatives. Before that, he served in the office of Senator Barbara Boxer. Four of those years, as policy director. Immediately before joining Brownstein this year, Drew served as a senior counselor to Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Matthews Burwell. Also joining us today is Brian McGuire, policy director here at Brownstein, which uh, was most recently Senator Mitch McConnell's chief of staff, where he advised on strategic communications, politics, and policy. Before that, he served for eight years in a variety of senior communication roles in Senator McConnell's Senate Leadership Office. Outside of McConnell's office, Brian consulted for the NRSC during Senator Jeff Flake's 2012 election and is a speechwriter for the Secretary of Department of Housing and Urban Development under the Bush administration. His writings have appeared in the publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Time, USA Today, and Politico. Here we are. Um, 2018 is here. Uh, we're moving down the path. More People are resigning and leaving and retiring from Congress than ever before, it seems. I know I'm probably exaggerating that number, but I am in Washington, D.C., so you can exaggerate things. Uh, But it's like 30-plus have left or are leaving, planning to retire from the House. You have um, president at fairly low popularity. You have Congress, not surprising, at low popularity. But you have some good economic indicators that are showing the economy going well. People are making a little more money than they used to. Um, but there's still a lot of tension and angst out there. The numbers I've seen in some polling, there's a higher percentage this time around so far. Democratic enthusiasm among the voters. Um, there is you know, special elections always going on. So kind of maybe I'll start with, with you, Brian. Maybe you can, what are the Republicans thinking? They control the House, the Senate. It, the White House. What do you think their their odds are of all? Obviously, the, the the president isn't up, but the House and Senate. What do you think the odds are of maintaining those? And where are the challenges? Yeah, look, uh, without making any specific predictions, Republicans are under no illusion about the challenges they face in a midterm election. Historically, the uh, headwinds are against the incumbent party, as everyone knows. Specifically, the House averages a loss of uh, 33 seats when the president's party controls both the House and the Senate in midterm elections. And in the Senate, I think the number is four. So with a one-vote majority in the Senate, this is very um, challenging environment for, for Republicans. How However, in the Senate, uh, Republicans have an extraordinarily good map to work with. They have 10 states in which Democrats are defending seats that uh, in, in, in states which Trump won. Five of those are in states where he won by more than 10 points. And I think one other thing Republicans will have going for them um, is the, the sort of 
difficulty Democrats have in saying anything good about this president. I think they still are struggling with, with that tension, and I think that it'll redound to their benefit of Republicans when people like Claire McCaskill find it so hard to say that the positive impacts of the tax bill are something that Missouri voters should be happy about. Do you think, um, let me ask you one more question on the Republicans, do you think in the Senate, uh, with that many Democratic seats at I'll say at risk because of based on the data point you've given. Do you think the Republicans have a chance to get closer to 60 than they've had in a long time? Or do you think it's just kind of a movement of votes, not a big significant shift? What do you think is going to... Depending on who you ask, we have an opportunity to pick up seats or this is viewed as a strictly defensive uh, midterm election. Um, I, you know, I think that it would be wise for Republicans to, um, you know, fight as hard and, and recruit the best possible candidates, despite the, the map. We saw what happened to Democrats in the last cycle when they got a little bit too confident on the basis of the map alone and ended up not winning the majority as many of them expected. So Republicans need to be conscious of the fact that the map is not the most important thing. The most important thing are the candidates that you run and the races that they put together. Drew, what do you think? What yeah. is going to happen here? I mean, there's been kind of a little wave, and, I, and I, I probably shouldn't use that word, but it seems like in these special elections that yeah. have been occurring in a variety of levels of government, Democrats have been picking up some seats that maybe they weren't supposed to. Yeah, I think uh, wave may not be the term, but you said right. it, it's staggered because special elections take place at all different times depending on circumstances uh, in the state. But we've seen s seats flip in places like Oklahoma, and the flipping trend has been distinctly favorable to Democrats. It seems to reflect increased Democratic turnout, not necessarily voters changing their minds. And that's important. So it goes to enthusiasm. It goes, it goes to enthusiasm. Democrats who, who not only wouldn't normally vote in specials, but probably many of them hadn't voted in the 2016 elections. Um, um, so, so that's an important sign. I think in January, I, I would have thought that Republicans would get close to 60 uh, Senate seats in the 2018 elections. The, the picture looks different, partly because President Trump's <coughs> approval rating has been uh, uh, stubbornly low. But I think it's also interesting, and, and you've got some perspective on this, Mark. The White House, it seems to me, did not um, very ardently court the 10 Democratic senators up for re-election in states that, that Trump won, maybe inconsistently courted them. But you don't see a lot of mansion on Air Force One or the president doing something with John Tester or going out to their states. There's a lot of, I think, the instinct to attack and to try and get closer to 60, or at least to preserve a majority, has been stronger than the instinct to try and get their votes, which is interesting because I don't think that's usually how the beginning of a presidency plays out. Usually, I think you're trying to win over those uh, senators who are up from the swing seats. And I didn't really see that happen here. But having represented Alaska, you may have a perspective on that. I do. I think that you're right. That's exactly what usually goes on. They try to bring you close in. Yeah. But do you think they're, do you think that's just the, the style of the White House? And I think about this only because uh, Trump is his own person, right? Yeah. President Trump will do what he thinks in his own mind is, is the right way to do the business, right? Sometimes he'll make an, you know, tweet something or he'll call or he'll invite people over to a meeting. I mean, they had that immigration meeting that seemed everyone was coming over. It seemed right. like a good meeting. Everyone left pretty 
happy. At, I, happy may not be the right word, but, you know, satisfied, like, oh, there's something that might happen. Yeah. And then a few days later, it all turns a different way. So right. it, it's almost like even if you're brought over there to be cajoled and talked to, and it, it may not be long-lasting. Yes. The, the president is erratic. I think if Jeb Bush had been elected president, just to take an example, you'd have you know a steadier temperament and probably a much more experienced, Washington-experienced White House staff, mm-hmm. uh, more political types, and you would have more of that kind of outreach. But yes, no, it's not Trump's... Outreach is not really Trump's personal style. Trying to crush people is Trump's personal I, I, I have a different point of view on this. I think courtship is a two-way street, and if these candidates who are running for re-election in red states thought that it was to their benefit to be associated with Trump or to vote with him, they would. And what we've seen is that they've made a calculation here that his favorability rating is so low that it's better for them not to be associated with him than to associate with him. The fact that Joe Manchin is running for re-election in a state that Trump won by 42 points and Heidi Heitkamp is running in a state that he won by 36 points would lead me to believe that they should cozy up to him, but they've made the calculation that um, his favorability rating is enough, enough reason for them not to. And, you know, we'll see who was right about that. But Where's that point that makes it, you know, I, w- I was reading a study recently and it was interesting. They were talking about the favorability of senators and you know, you saw a few up in the 60s, but very rarely. Now it's kind of like that. It used to be if you were in the 50-plus, you're pretty excited. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're yeah. like, wow, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. And 60 was like, oh, you know, gold. Now if you're in the high 40s, you're excited. You're right, you know? right. you're, so the threshold has almost been dropped across the board. So we're – because I think the president's at 30-something. I can't even know what the latest is. But it seems like what is that number or is there even going to be a number that – People, like you said, if you're a Democrat and let's say he's in the favorability that you're in, you might want to associate with them on certain issues just to get that scorecard up. Is there such a number anymore, or is it just that Trump is President Trump is too toxic for them for the base that might kill him? I think it helps. If, Thinking of Democrats here, yeah. Even if the president's not that popular, it helps to offer issue positions where you think a, a, a McCaskill or a tester might naturally agree with you. And and so in some of these states w- that have elected Republicans, not just Trump, but Republican senators overwhelmingly, you've also seen in the last six years the success of, a huge success of ballot initiatives to raise the minimum wage. Um, you've seen interest in legalizing marijuana, in some cases even uh, Medicaid expansion. So So... I'm not sure how much is ideological, how much is temperamental, how much is Obama was Obama fatigue when people voted. Um, the president certainly does seem to be popular in West Virginia. I certainly acknowledge that. But I don't know. I think from the point of view, say, of a Senator Manchin, there's nothing coming out of this White House that his constituents would expect him to support. Do you think um, between now and 18, do you think we'll get back into, and I, and I say back into, we're kind of in it off and on. Just will Senator McConnell put on the agenda like they did, I think it was Monday night, the 20-week abortion issue. Will there be these issues starting to pop up just to create you know, a scorecard pro or con for that senator who votes a certain way? Are we going to see more of that? Well, I don't think if you ask Republicans who care about that issue that they view that as simply a box-checking exercise. I think it's a really important issue for Republicans and for a lot of Americans. Um, but if you look at it, it was only a one-time shot. There was no scheduled plan of any additional work. 
I mean, usually on an issue, even when it's a hot button, I remember in the Senate, you would have an issue and then you'd have potential other votes that might relate to it, but they just had one vote scheduled and that's it. And a Monday night is well, I think you know, you know I think check I vote. think the leadership likes to. Um use the limited floor time available to it to vote on things that they expect will pass. And so I think you're going to see Leader McConnell devote a significant amount of floor time, as he did last year, to lifetime appointments to the judiciary. I think that um, is an issue that a lot of vote, uh, Democrats like Joe Manchin and his voters should care a lot about. I think the voters of West Virginia like what the president is doing on the on the federal courts. I, li- I think he, they like what he's doing on the regulatory rollback. And then again, I think what's happening in terms of the corporate response to the tax bill is hugely significant to working class voters in places like West Virginia. So I think those things will continue to be beneficial to voters in those states and present a kind of problem for Democrats running in those states. But I also think that, yeah, it's an election year, and, and I'm not so naive as to suggest that we're not going to see some messaging some votes messaging here. Do you think there, you know, I thought I had heard a couple months ago, but I haven't heard anything since, so my information may be old and stale, but that the Senate majority was not going to bring forward the budget, which I can't imagine. I mean, they're, they're going to bring forward the budget like they would normally do. But I heard, and I can't remember uh, where I heard Senator McConnell say it, but is it likely we're going to see in the next two months we'll see a budget bill? And then there'll be this voterama craziness that goes along. Or do you think somehow that will kind of quietly disappear and we'll just be voting on a CR and and that kind of stuff? I think the latter. I, I the think, latter? I think we may not see a budget resolution. Which uh, is going to be interesting. I mean, do you think – I mean, I think – I think we'll see a budget resolution if the majority leader thinks he has enough votes to pass it. And isn't that we, in, we it, lost one Republican last year on the budget. We've got one fewer Republican than we did right, right. last month. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's oh, good point. You have one that was already a no. no pretty matter tight what. margin. You also have senators who may be physically, unfortunately, physically unable to vote. And I hate for that to be a factor in, in how anything gets resolved. And but, a budget rama is, you know, it never ends. And you have to have some endurance to, to stay there. And, speaking as a former Senate staffer, and I'm sure I speak for you as a former <laughs> Senator and Brian, we hate those budget voter ramas. This is a million non binding votes. Right, right. And people sometimes, constituencies get a little overly excited right. when they see something happening on the floor. But in fact, even if it passes, nothing happens. Nothing happens. So it's maddening from a standpoint. It's, it's actually, I remember my first year and I'd see these lists. There's like several oh. hundred amendments. And I said, oh, we got to vote on all these? And the answer was, well, we'll stream them down. We'll have a manager's amendment. And then when I heard later, it's like, well, it really doesn't matter because the votes are non-binding on a budget. It's We're going to do appropriations and yeah. blah, blah, blah. I think, then why are we doing this? Legislative staff works really hard to come up with legislative right. vote analysis on all those. And so it's a, it's a lot of work. And I think even, you know, the members seemed a little bit fatigued last time we went through this. They ended the votes a little bit earlier than usual. And, and the community members who care about this outside of Washington take it to a level that's beyond what it really is. And as a former elected official, you get the the beating on it when in reality because what's funny about this I remember the first year I remember there was an amendment on the wall funding the wall and I voted no I thought what a waste of money that is but but then when I mentioned a couple members they were like oh you know we got to think about this I'm thinking I don't understand it's not binding some some years ago I I was working on the transition of someone who would turn out to be an incoming senator she hadn't been elected yet and I wrote one of the few unsolicited memos I wrote was a memo saying don't go on the budget committee (laughs) and they hadn't asked but but there was a vacancy that logically would have been hurt that she would have been appointed to and of course 
she was appointed to the budget committee. She accepted <laughs> it. And later that first year, her legislative director stopped me in the hall and said, buddy, we should have listened to you. We should have. I said, well, didn't you know? Didn't I explain? He said, you know, it was hard to explain to her that you hold all these hearings and you cast all these votes and you pass her and none of it means anything. I said, no, I know. It's hard to get it. I haven't figured out. I've had this conversation with other newly elected senators. I can't figure out how to get this across. Well, I actually did my best to stay off until one day Senator Menendez came to me because he was on the Democratic Senate campaign committee that year, mm-hmm, chair, mm-hmm. and was getting off and said, would you serve on in the budget committee. And of course I was not very interested, uh, but I took it because I then traded it for Indian affairs later. Mm. And that was a, a higher value because there was some freshman that came in that well, thought they wanted to be on the budget committee. And I said, you sure. essentially traded an A for a B, right. which was a shrewd move. Most people would not have never made it. They would not trade an A for a B, but you knew you were not getting a yield from the A. That's I think right. people watch these hearings <laughs> where the budget committee gets to the floor at the beginning of the year, right? Yeah. There's nothing else happening. So in February, you have cabinet secretaries testifying and your constituents watch and think, you know, wow. you're kicking this person's butt. You're really going right. to change A, B, and C. But. And I said, I'm getting off of this thing. And I got off quick enough. What do you think? Let me kind of summarize or maybe close out on this. So we're, we're in this, you know, state of union. I mean, I, I'm guessing the president, my, my prediction is he's going to do very well tonight. He'll do his speech. He'll uh, do his presentation. He'll follow that lead uh, of his staff and how that presentation is. He'll talk about all the great things going on in the country that he'll take credit for. I'm more interested in what's going to happen two days from now. What do you think is going to happen? Do, will he be able to you know, not disrupt? Because I do believe he'll do well in his presentation and present well. He does when he has the teleprompter going and all that. He does well. Will it be able to kind of, because as you know, the minute that State of the Union is done, from the time you walk from that place to back to your office, the hallways are crawling with all these stand-up, you know, for you to come and get interviewed. And people are tweeting, and within hours, whatever's happening is happening. What do you think, Brian, do you think he's going to, will he be able to kind of step off and move to something else, or will he listen to all that noise, which is probably the highest level of noise? I mean, of any kind of presentation, it will be intense. We have one example to draw from. Uh, Last year, he gave a joint address to Congress, similar to the State of the Union he's going to be giving tonight. And Democrats miscalculated. They expected that he would fumble it and embarrass himself. And he ended up giving what was, by all accounts, a very good speech speech that, like most presidents, found a real sweet spot in terms of the policy proposals in, in, in trying to appeal to you know, average voters mm-hmm. on issues that that most people care about that people in Washington tend not to focus on. And I expect he'll do that again tonight. And um, I think that he kind of appreciated, obviously, the the response to that speech and will be looking to replicate it tonight. What do you think will happen 48 hours from now? I think I think it'll be forgotten by Monday, if not 48 hours. Uh, Trump provides so much news. He generates so much news. He's, 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 a news. he's a news machine. And this won't be that consequential. I don't, I don't think there'll be a lot of surprises. Um, and I don't think there's a lot of, of capacity to handle new policy ideas or process new policy ideas. There's not going to be a breathtaking initiative that everyone's going to still be talking about in 48 hours. What's the number one issue for 2018? And we'll end on that. What's, what do you think, Drew? Number one issue that people are going to have to deal with in 2018. When I say people, congressional, president, oh, elected. by far the Mueller investigation. 
Mueller investigation? Yeah. What do you think, Brian? The economy. The economy. Do you think those two run two separate tracks no matter what? I do. I hope Democrats continue to focus on the Russia investigation, <laughs> which 1% of the public cares about, <laughs> and Republicans will focus on jobs in the economy, which a plurality of voters care about. Do you think anything switches? I'll, I'll just say this on the Mueller thing. Do you think anything switches if, if there are indictments? Brian, do you think anything? Or is it just because I agree with you. I think the, the average voter out there on the Russia thing, it's minimal right now. But suddenly, if someone's indicted, what do you think? It's hard to say. It's, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's just hypothetical. I'm not interested in entertaining right <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think indictments matter, and I think Trump's reaction matters. Because a lot of his least presidential moments are in response to the progress of the investigation. Um, uh, that seems to bring out the worst in him, and voters do react to that. I mean, I, I could put a counter question and say, if there are no indictments in November, is this something yeah. the Democrats are going to regret spending so much time focused on? Well, I think if there's no, I mean, from my perspective, there's no indictments. This thing will vanish from that, you know, what 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 I call D.C. headlines there are on it. Because if you go out to, uh, you know, my daily paper in Anchorage, this isn't on there. You know, yeah, it's I, not really the topic of the day. Th- that's understandable. I think that um, Mueller may be there. Are, there are certain potential crimes and potential because we don't really know that could be prosecuted on the federal level or the state level. If you prosecute someone on the federal level, then the president could pardon that person. On the state level, the president can't. Right, which creates different dynamics. Right. So if you if you were if you were seeking if you're on the verge of indicting someone, say, for money laundering or tax evasion, those would also be crimes probably in states. New York State, in the case, if they were related to the to the Trump Organization's real estate business, for example. Um, it might make sense for Mueller not to issue indictments for those crimes. You wouldn't want to activate New York's double jeopardy law. Instead, you would let the New York Attorney General take over prosecution. So it could be the, the path could be a little more complicated. So here's the prediction of the day. First to Brian, then to Drew. Does the House stay Republican? And if so, how close? Or does it switch? The House is going to be a real challenge for Republicans. But again, I think Democrats' inability to say anything good or positive about what this president is doing is creating a vulnerability for them that they don't fully appreciate right now and will help Republicans withstand those headwinds in November. And Senate, what do you think? Senate, I think we, we hold. Um, I think hold. the map really helps us, and I think that we've got more than enough to sell to voters. Drew, what do you think? Uh, House? I, think I think the House flips. Um, big margin? I mean, will the well, Democrats I, I, come out of it with a big margin? or just about, the, about the margin that Republicans have now. Okay, then let me um, pause you on that. If the House flips, is Nancy Pelosi the speaker? Yes. Okay. I think that um, the Senate is a jump ball, because I think, as Brian suggested earlier, you do have to look candidate by candidate and race by race. Um, And some of them, the challengers are only emerging. Some of them, I think it pays to wait to see the results of the primaries. Um, So I I think whether, for example, Rick Scott decides to run in Florida, I mean, the the Senate could turn on that one decision. Mm -hmm. So very hard to make a prediction about the Senate just now. I would agree with you. I think the Senate, I'm, I'm a believer, probably could end up as a 50-50 and where Pence becomes uh, a permanent, you know, that little ceremonial office down there with the vice president. I think he may be more camped out there than I think he had ever anticipated. I think the House does flip, but I think it's a very thin margin. And I think Nancy Pelosi has a bigger challenge than she's had before. 
And I agree with I agree with that. Yeah, I think she still stays there, but I think her challenge is going to grow, and there's going to have to be uh, changes. Or I think yeah, I, I don't, her I, leadership team is going to be in trouble. I don't know what your perception is, but but I can remember going back to when I worked for Barbara Boxer in the House in the late '80s, early '90s, that a challenge to the party leadership was always imminent. Yeah, uh, you know. Uh, Tip O'Neill was going to be deposed. Jim Wright was going to be deposed. Tom Foley was going to be deposed. You can go all the way down the line. Those challenges work better hypothetically than they do when you actually have to count votes and when people currently in office have to vote (laughs) against their own current leader, knowing what the consequences are, if if, if nonetheless the leader gets reelected, those consequences are quite serious. So so, um, I think overall Pelosi's done a terrific job. I don't think she'll be deposed. Whether there will be other changes to get new blood in, I think that's probably pretty likely. Pretty likely. Thank you both very much. Always interesting to have the politics of the day. And uh, who knows, a couple months from now, we'll have a different conversation. Who knows? No doubt. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.